We're told that on the evening of February 21, 1861, Abraham Lincoln, en route from Springfield, Illinois, to Washington, D.C., arrived in Philadelphia. It was just his second visit to the city of brotherly love, and Lincoln, a great admirer of the Founding Fathers, wanted to see Independence Hall, where the Declaration of Independence was adopted and signed. His personal political credo had been formulated on the principles of the Declaration, and now, as the country moved hopelessly toward civil war, the president-elect was seeking inspiration for the difficult circumstances that confronted him. On Capitol Hill, many felt that Lincoln, a prairie lawyer chosen by a minority of the popular vote, was ill-equipped to hold the nation together. His detractors believed that he had stolen the election through cunning and luck. Now there were concerns that he lacked the will and purpose to lead the nation in the face of a mounting crisis. Lincoln's reverence for the nation's founding was intimately bound to his vision for its future, a point he made clear on February 22nd when he delivered a brief address at Independence Hall. Arriving at 7 a.m., the president-elect was ushered into the East Wing chamber where the declaration had been signed 85 years earlier. In reply to welcoming remarks by Theodore L. Kyler, president of the Select Council of Philadelphia, Lincoln made an extemporaneous speech, admitting that he was filled with deep emotion as he stood on the same site as the founders. Speaking of his strong reverence for the Declaration, he admitted that he had never had a feeling politically that did not spring from the sentiments embodied in the document which gave liberty not alone to the people of this great country, but hope to the world for all future time. Then, addressing the impending crisis, Lincoln added, If this country cannot be saved without giving up that principle, I would rather be assassinated on this spot than to surrender to it. It is the only principle, he resolved, that I am willing to live by, and in the pleasure of Almighty God, die by. All that from the study Abraham Lincoln, the Quakers, and the Civil War by William Cushatis. Dr. Cushatis is an historian and author of more than a dozen books, including a study of the late Congressman Dan Flood and important works on baseball, its history, and historic players. We had a chance to talk with Dr. Cushatis about Abraham Lincoln when the book was released by Prager, and we revisit that conversation today. When I was out at Earlham, 1977 to 1980 were my years at Earlham, and there was a very well-known theologian and professor of religion at Earlham by the name of D. Elton Trueblood. D. Elton Trueblood was internationally known, and he had done some work on Abraham Lincoln. A book that he wrote was published in 1973, was called Theologian of American Anguish. And what D. Elton basically argued in that book is that Lincoln had a spiritual fellowship with the Quakers, and it revolved around what he called the doctrine of necessity, the belief that God does will human actions, and he has his own plan for all of us, and particularly the leaders in our society. 
and that those people become his means to affect his will on earth. And his book basically focused on the theology around that, but I became convinced that there was much more to it than than the theological underpinnings of the relationship. And I started uh, thinking about the Quaker testimonies on pacifism, community, and equality, and it became more and more apparent to me that the Quakers, in fact, were the most outspoken abolitionist group in the 19th century, and also that Lincoln had Quaker ties. We know that, I guess it was his paternal grandparents or great-grandparents settled in Berks County, Pennsylvania, and they were Quakers and practicing Quakers. And it was something that Lincoln was always fascinated with. And in fact, in his very first biographical sketch, which interestingly was published in the Chester County Times in Pennsylvania, it was done to try to introduce this Midwesterner to the East Coast. And that biographical sketch was picked up by the New York Times after it ran in the Chester County Times, the Philadelphia Inquirer, and many of the major papers. But in that biographical sketch, he mentions that his his ancestors were Quaker and that he was always intrigued by that. Indeed, now it might just be coincidental, but Lincoln did have a number of Quaker-like idiosyncrasies. He dressed in the uh, very simple black and white. He rebuffed all titles. He really didn't like titles at all. His prose and his writing, uh, although they are can be very poetic, they are very also concise and and to the point, which is a hallmark of Quaker writing. Now, again, that might just be coincidental, but what wasn't coincidental was his belief in the doctrine of necessity and his basically shunning of all formal religion and ostentation. And when I began to look into Lincoln's background during his presidency, I found in the logs in his book that there were these several meetings with groups of the Society of Friends, as well as an ongoing correspondence with individual Quakers. So I was very curious, what, what's that about? And as, as I began to do the research and the reading of, of this documentation, which basically amounted to about two dozen pieces, you know, not really strong enough to be appended to the papers of Abraham Lincoln, but nonetheless fascinating, I think, for people who were interested in Lincoln's religious beliefs. Lincoln being very undogmatic, you know, and never really being a a formal member of any church, although he did worship uh, and attend the uh, New York Avenue Presbyterian Church in Washington, D.C. Lincoln was, in in that respect, much like the Quakers, who really uh, were not um, into all the practices and the uh, I won't say ostentation, but the formality of religion. It was much more simple faith. The Quakers call their faith primitive Christianity revived. So I began looking at this uh, this relationship, and sure enough, I found that 
Lincoln and these Quaker groups are always talking the same language. They're talking about the doctrine of necessity. They're talking about equality and uh, emancipation of the slaves and what the implications of that are. And they're also meeting and talking about conscientious objection and how Lincoln would never force a Quaker or any individual to serve in the army against their will. And in fact, what we see is that is really part of the Quaker legacy of the Civil War, that in the Enrollment Act of 1863, the Quakers successfully lobbied first Lincoln and then Secretary of War Edward Stanton to make an amendment for conscientious objection. And that has been with us ever since. You set the stage for us and the exploration of what you've just outlined with the meeting. You didn't like meetings when people would come to lobby, you explained, but Mm -hmm. this was a different tone, a different kind of meeting. And he met a woman with whom he did have an extended correspondence, a Quaker. Set the stage for us a little bit, because that's an intriguing meeting. Mm -hmm. Yes, in October, I believe it was October 26, 1862, it was shortly after Lincoln had issued the preliminary emancipation, stating his intention of freeing all the slaves in the southern states. And he was going through a trial by fire. It was very, very painful for him because he was being opposed even by members of his own cabinet on on this issue. And then, of course, the border states were concerned about this, the border states being those states that retained their loyalty and connection to the Union and were allowed to keep their slaves. And Lincoln was in spiritual turmoil about this. And a Quaker minister by the name of Eliza Gurney had written and asked for an, an interview. They called meetings interviews in those days with the president. And she came with three other members, three other friends, members of the Society of Friends. And they came, introduced themselves. And the first thing that Eliza Gurney did after that was began to pray for Lincoln. And she quoted from First Peter, um, I believe it was chapter 1, or maybe it was chapter 4, which recalls the early Christians' persecution and the trials that, that they went through. And she equated it with Lincoln's circumstances and the persecution that she felt he was enduring at this period of time. And if you read accounts of the meeting that were taken by these Quakers, the preaching had touched Lincoln so deeply that tears began to roll down his his face. And as Quakers do after preaching, they would settle into a moment of meditative silence, something that Lincoln appreciated because he didn't always like preaching. He, he did believe, as Quakers did, that uh, the best fellowship came in silent prayer. So they settled into this silent meditative worship, and then um, Eliza Gurney spoke her mind that uh, they were supporting Lincoln in this this great trial, and Lincoln later returned the favor by saying, I understand that we are both going through a great trial. It is a fiery trial, and that term fiery trial became a catchphrase for him. Uh, about the really the moral struggle within the Civil War. And that fiery trial was how to eliminate all the bloodshed and the wounds of war as quickly as possible and at the same time fulfill this need 
to remove the moral blot on the conscience of America, which was slavery. And that is something that weighed so heavily. And as you were here talking with us on television, in fact, about the power of the Gettysburg Address, and you help us understand some of the significance of it in this study that you've given us, help review for us that sense of how the Gettysburg Address reveals Lincoln's wrestling with that notion of the carnage. Mm-hmm. The Gettysburg Address, not many people understand this. Uh, They only think of it as the commemoration or uh, memorialization of the men that, the Union men that died on the battlefield at Gettysburg. And it's so much more than that. That address was delivered on November 19, 1863. Now, by that time, Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation, which was an executive order, And many people claim that it was an extra-legal order, that it superseded his constitutional powers, but that emancipation had gone into effect. It had gone into effect on January the 1st, 1863. So under that proclamation, all the slaves in the South, not in the border states, but in the South, were free. And what Lincoln said in that Gettysburg Address is that his objective, the Union objective for the war, was not simply to preserve the Union. It was also to create a rebirth of freedom, the freedom that the Founding Fathers had articulated at the Second Continental Congress on July 4, 1776. And that freedom was the freedom of life, liberty, and the pursuit of all happiness for all people, all people. And what he was saying when he made that statement, was that he wedded a second objective, the emancipation of slavery to his original one of preservation of the Union. And let me tell you, that was not greeted very happily by the South and even in many quarters of the North. People accused him of trampling over the Constitution, which said that Under the Fifth Amendment, slaves were the property of their masters and that he had no right to do this, no constitutional right to free the slaves. So it it, it was not as popular as as now we look back on it and and perceive it. Uh, However, there were many critical elements in Northern society that did recognize the importance and the necessity for it, one of whom was Edward Everett. The individual who went on and on and on for two hours on that very same day, recounting every action that occurred at the Battle of Gettysburg. Everett was considered the most famous orator in the country at that period of time. He was a former Secretary of State, former president of Harvard College. And here's Lincoln. He, he has 200 words. He goes on for two minutes People really didn't even understand. They hardly even applauded him when he he gave his address. And the day after, Edward Everett writes Lincoln a letter that says something to the effect, I should be happy if I came to the central purpose of the occasion in two hours, as you did in two minutes. And he was spot on. He was spot on. Coming from Massachusetts, he realized he did have an abolitionist background. He realized the necessity to abolish slavery, and he did realize that at that point in the war, 
that this is what the men were fighting for. With regard to what Lincoln laid out, where did the Quakers come down? Well, the Quakers had been pushing Lincoln to emancipate the slaves ever since he took office, which is simply something he couldn't have done. I mean, he would have cut his political throat had he done that. He would have been impeached. That process had to evolve. And if you look at the process, it's really quite fascinating because when Lincoln took office, he said in his first inaugural that he was not going to interfere with the institution of slavery where it already existed, which was the South. And that very same year in 1861, because the inaugural was March 4th, 1861, the first inaugural, he begins to reconsider the issue and he starts making plans for the gradual abolition of slavery and I should say compensated emancipation of slavery because he proposed to Delaware, the state legislature, that he would reimburse every slaveholder $300 for each slave if they would free the slaves. And Delaware considered it. Now, Lincoln's ploy here was basically to get Delaware to do this as a border state, hoping the other border states would accept the offer. And if they would accept the offer, then the South would realize there's no way that the border states would come to their side and their cause was dead. Delaware did not accept it, ultimately. So now Lincoln's stuck. And in 1862, there are a few events that coalesce around his decision to emancipate the slaves. One is that he has generals who, once they go into a southern area and once they defeat the Confederates in that area, they issue an order to free them. And Lincoln gets very mad about this. The first one was General John C. Fremont that did this in Missouri. And he says to him, you have no authority to do that. So he rescinds, Lincoln rescinds Fremont's order and sends those slaves back into slavery. And, and there, there were two other generals that did that to him, and he does the same thing. But he's realizing that, yes, you know, the military opinion is starting to come around to this side. He also suffers the death of his favorite son, Willie, 12 years old. Willie was really his shining star. He uh, was like Lincoln himself in many ways. He was a uh, very pensive child, a uh, very religious child, and one who could bring a smile to his father's face immediately. Uh, he did not have that relationship with his oldest son, nor did he have the closeness with the youngest son that he did with Willie. And Willie dies of typhus. And that devastates Lincoln. Lincoln uh, struggled with depression his entire life, but this, this almost destroyed him. Not many people realize that. And he begins now to feel the pain of all these families who are losing sons and fathers and brothers and uncles on the battlefield. And he begins to say, my God, you know, the Lord could stop this if he wanted to. But he wills that it continues. So why? You know, the South prays to the same God we do. Why does he let it continue? Why is all, the, all this suffering? And throughout this spiritual struggle, you have these Quaker groups who are meeting with him and these Quaker meetings that are writing to him, and they're pushing him more and more and more to emancipate the slaves. So finally... 
in, uh, I guess it's uh, July, uh, maybe early August, he announces to his cabinet uh, not to ask for their advice, but to inform them he's going to emancipate the slaves. And most of them don't think it's a good idea. But he said, I, I'm not asking your advice. I'm going to do it. His Secretary of State, William Seward, convinces him that he had better do it after a decided Union victory. It's not going to carry any weight. So September 17th and the Battle of Antietam comes around. I'd hardly call that a Union victory. It was a draw at best, but Lincoln interpreted it as a victory. And right after, he issued the preliminary Emancipation Proclamation, and the Quakers were overjoyed with it, absolutely overjoyed, because the Quakers were the first religious organization in North America to write an anti-slavery petition. It was in 1688. The Germantown meeting uh, in Philadelphia drafted this petition and said that it was a sin to hold other human beings in bondage. So from 1688 on... You have the Religious Society of Friends that are abolitionists. Now, after 1776, and they abolish slavery within their own society, individual Quakers pick up the gauntlet, and they continue to take their abolitionist crusade out into the larger non-Quaker society. And so Eliza Gurney continues to write personally, and he writes to her. Yes. And that sense of support from her in terms of, I understand what you're going through. I can see that you all in this way and and we all are in this together. You think things like that had a huge impact as well? Absolutely. I see Eliza Gurney, the Quaker minister, as the spiritual support that... John Bright, the English Quaker parliamentarian, was the political support for Lincoln. Bright was one of Lincoln's political heroes, and indeed, it was largely due to John Bright's efforts in England that kept the British from supporting the Confederate cause during the Civil War. Another very moving portion of the book, and there are so many because you do give us a sense of Lincoln the person, and that's when he makes the pilgrimage to Independence Hall. Mm. What impelled him, do you think, to go to see the Mm. place where the Declaration of Independence was Mm -hmm. signed? Lincoln's political heroes were the founding fathers, and he had always said that his political creed was the Declaration of Independence. Thus, you can see why emancipation was so important to him. And on his train ride in early 1861 to assume the presidency, leaving Springfield, Illinois, his home en route to Washington, D.C., he made it a point to stop off in Philadelphia because he had never been there before. He had never set foot in what was then Independence Hall. Originally, it was the Pennsylvania State House. That's where the Declaration of Independence was, was uh, signed. And he wanted to walk on what he considered sacred ground. And there was a flag-raising ceremony. It was uh, Washington's birthday, February 22nd, 1861. And he raised the flag, and he gave a very short speech saying that he would rather be assassinated on this spot than to let the South secede. And it's rather ironic because he was indeed assassinated, and largely for black voting rights. I mean, that's what John Wilkes Booth was upset about, that Lincoln was moving towards enfranchising the black man. And Lincoln's second visit to Independence Hall was in a casket 
and some 60,000 people filed through Independence Hall where he laid in state in April of 1865 uh, on his train route back home to Springfield, Illinois. You also have given us a sense that the Quaker influence did not end with just the abolition of the slaves, that there was an impact on the Reconstruction as well. Oh, absolutely. I think that the Quakers felt so excoriated by the non-Quaker, their non-Quaker neighbors throughout the country because there were some Quakers who actually did pick up the rifle and fight during the, the Civil War. But largely, pacifism was an article of their Quaker faith, and that was unconditional. And their neighbors did not appreciate that because they were giving up sons and, and fathers and brothers to die in this fratricidal conflict. So the Quakers, I think, felt they had to find a way to show that they were committed American citizens, but not through war. And, and they chose uh, the relief of freedmen. And that grew into the education of freedmen. So you had a lot of these yearly meetings, the New York yearly meeting, Philadelphia yearly meeting, New England yearly meeting, that would take up large collections of money. And they would take that, physically take that money and go down to the South and make sure that it was being spent for the benefit of the freedmen in terms of food and clothing and shelter and and things of that sort. And since many Quakers were educators, they were teachers, there was a, a movement by the Religious Society of Friends to start schools for not only the education of the freedmen, but also their children. And those schools continued, frankly, long after Reconstruction ended in 1877. And what's so fascinating about that is, is Lincoln appreciated that. He really did, because it was Lincoln's uh, observation that the federal government, once the war was over, should be doing things like that. And he started talking to Congress about it, and Congress uh, did, uh, after Lincoln died, unfortunately, establish a institution which was very much in line with Quaker thinking, the Freedmen's Bureau. And in fact, they even, uh, Congress, that is, consulted the Quakers on how that bureau should run, and the Quakers did join efforts with the Federal Freedmen's Bureau to aid uh, the Freedmen's and start schools and, and the like. So when all is said and done and you did the research and had been mulling over this whole sense of Lincoln and the Quakers and their way of viewing the world and the universe, why is this important for us to understand now? It's not just a curious footnote. That's right. Yeah, one of the very few criticisms I've gotten in the book, but nonetheless, it, it, it is a criticism and I think it's a misreading of the book. The accusation is that I am trying to make Lincoln a Quaker. I am not. I, I, I try to state that as clearly as possible. What I say is that there were parts of Lincoln's thinking that resonated with Quaker thought and Quaker belief. And this is where he found a, a, um, a collaboration and a bond with the Society of Friends. But I think the wider statement that I'm trying to make in this book is that not just Quakers, but all religious societies and, and all groups in, in a country can work together with a political leader when they trust that leader. The Quakers really felt that Abraham Lincoln was, yeah, one of them, that he was a friend. 
that they could sit down and talk with him. And, and they, they really mourned him. When he died, the Quakers, there are journal entries where you could even, which was, for me, very sobering. Apparently, liquid had dropped down on the page and, you know, most likely could have been tears in, in recording these things. I mean, the Quakers were very, very upset about his assassination, and they called him Friend Abraham. And today, when we have lost touch with our political leaders, and and we never get to talk with them, we get to talk to some suit in their office, and our, our needs uh, are put off. Lincoln had an open-door policy, and he ran himself ragged trying to, you know, meet those obligations. You just don't see that today. You don't even see it at the local level. Now, you know, to be sure, the presidency these days is, is really more of a conglomeration of a, of, a, of a bureaucracy in Washington, D.C. There still is not that touch and accessibility to the American people, and, and one begins to feel that it's just a lot of words. There's really not, you know, the substance behind them that there was uh, with a man like Abraham Lincoln. So I, I really like to leave the readers, you know, with that, that as long as there are some people out there who run for office who can be trusted and you have faith in them, that you shouldn't give up faith in the system, that, that these leaders can be worked with. And you give us a sense that someone in a position that was so responsible for so many lives, the decisions were momentous. Life and death decisions had to be made. The future of democracy, perhaps, as we all would hope it would unfold, hanging in the balance. Someone like Abraham Lincoln needs some sort of framework or some sort of support to be able to get through the next day mm -hmm. and have to do the politics and do that kind of thing. I, no, I think you're absolutely right. You know, the Quakers did tap into Lincoln's humanity as well as his spirituality. You know, Lincoln was a very complex personality. He, he was politically shrewd. He could play that game, and he did it very well, very well. He actually led public opinion down the path to accept emancipation, and he did it in small steps. That is a politician to the nth degree. However, the characteristic of Abraham Lincoln that I admire most, even beyond his spirituality, is his humility. And I think that's something that our politicians could learn from. And, and I just give you one example. So many times when our government goes to war, we always talk about how God is on our side. Well, what do you think the enemy's saying? You don't think the jihadists out there today are saying that God's not on their side? I mean, when you, when you come to think about it, that, that's really a very arrogant statement to assume that God is on your side. And, and Lincoln, Lincoln was too humble for that. And I think that humility led him to ask Hey, God, what do you want from me? If I'm supposed to be an instrument, lead me, because I need help. And he even said, near the end of his life, I claim not to have controlled events, but rather events have controlled me. There's this debate. Does the individual 
shape history or do the circumstances shape history? I have to believe that in Lincoln's case, it was both. Dr. William Cachetis, historian and author of more than a dozen books, speaking with us about his study titled Abraham Lincoln, the Quakers, and the Civil War, a trial of principle and faith issued by Prager. For more information on the web, www.abc-clio.com, abc-clio.com, Abraham Lincoln, The Quakers and the Civil War by William Cushatus. And Cushatus is spelled K-A-S-H-A-T-U-S. And for more information, abc-clio.com.